This is a Vault Studios production. It's almost the end of March, and there have been two weeks of testimony in the Tex MacGyver murder trial so far. Doctors, nurses, friends, detectives, and of course, Danny Joe Carter, the woman driving the MacGyver's SUV the night Diane MacGyver was shot and killed. But there's more courtroom drama to come. Did you ever perform a, a massage on him any time in the months following the death of his wife, Diane, which he was naked? I'll tell you what was most compelling was this masseuse. It gave you another reason, a more emotional reason, as to why he wanted to get rid of Diane. It didn't seem like there was anything necessarily untoward about it, but it was just that it was a very close relationship that a, that a couple would have with their masseuse, Annie Anderson. And it really struck a lot of people listening to the testimony and following the story and on social media as well as what's what's going on with this masseuse? What's the deal? Something doesn't, something doesn't sound right or smell right here. I'm Caitlin Ross. This is Intent, the Tex McIver case, Chapter 6. All right, take a look at all these guns inside the Fulton County Courthouse today. Piles of guns carted in, carted out. This isn't a trial of some sort of drug kingpin or gang member. On day 13 of the trial, the prosecution shifts its focus to guns. Texas 38 caliber revolver, specifically. Zachary Weitzel, a firearms investigator with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, testifies for the prosecution about the gun that was in Texas' hand the night of the shooting. Jurors heard an expert testify the gun was a double-action weapon, meaning it has to be cocked and the trigger pulled for it to go off. If it's not cocked, the shooter needs to exert 12 pounds of force to get that gun to fire. Chief Prosecutor Clint Rucker begins the questioning. And um, you've checked that gun to make sure it is safe, correct? Correct. The jury watches as the firearms investigator handles Texas' gun. Rucker then asks Weitzel to demonstrate what it would take to fire the revolver in single action mode. The trigger is going to move forward just a little and slip off, and that's where the hammer is going to fall. So to demonstrate that with the paper, if you can see it, it's just a very slight movement. Were you able to see Rucker then asks Weitzel to demonstrate double action mode. So with double action, you see that the trigger is now set further back. Okay, so from there, I would have to pull the trigger up all the way. So about to there is as far as I can stage it without the hammer falling. But then from this, it's almost the same distance as the as a single action, but it would have to travel this full distance to fire. Rucker continues, asking what it would take for the gun to fire accidentally. If I just hold it in my hands like this, will it just go off? No. Sit down with it, hold it down here in my lap, will it just go off? No. If I handle it like this in any way, Will it just go off? No. What will make this firearm go off? Something would have to act on the trigger. And when you say something has to act on the trigger, what do you mean? I mean, the trigger has to be pulled rearward. 
after Rucker leads Weitzel through a detailed discussion of the weapon and its inner workings, defense attorney Bruce Harvey questions the witness. You don't know whether the weapon, um, this particular weapon was fired uh, single action or double action because there's no way to tell is there how right. a weapon was fired, correct? That's correct. Um, there's no way to tell, especially if, if something is inside a bag at night, whether it's already in single action or double action, correct? Right, there's not a test for me for that. Okay. And there's not a test to determine whether it, was, whether it was fired in single action or double action, correct? Right. Um, and <clears throat> the weapon was not, you said, malfunctioning. We know that. Right. So you're telling us that there was manipulation of the trigger, correct? Right. Um, do you know what that was? No. All right. If it's in single action, I think you said that if it's in single action, if you put it in your pocket, even keys, it may hit some keys in your pocket and go off, the trigger pull is so light, correct? Right. Um, and if you have the weapon and you don't know whether it's in single action or double action, it's extremely easy for that weapon to go off. Even things like keys in your pocket um, can um, um, uh, unintentionally discharge the weapon, correct? Right, so any force um, that exerts that amount of pressure, and our average was uh, two and one quarter pounds, so anything that can exert that amount of force can pull the trigger. And there's no scientific test or test that you can do to tell us whether or not the trigger was intentionally or unintentionally pulled, correct? No. The following day, Detective Darren Smith with the Atlanta Police Homicide Unit takes the stand. Prosecutors lean in to what investigators failed to ask following the shooting. You asked directly, Mr. McGowan, did you pull the trick? I, I did not. A bit of a bizarre moment in court. People watching our stream on social media wondering what's going on with the prosecutor in the Tex MacGyver murder case going after his own lead detective from APD on the witness stand. I mean, at one point, the detective was telling the jury that he told the witness he thought it was an accident. And don't forget, police originally charged MacGyver with voluntary manslaughter, not murder. That was the DA. Day 14 comes to a close as the judge, the jury, the lawyers, and Tex McIver all prepare for a one-week break. That night on 11 Alive, Vinnie Politan takes a chance to review where the case stands with the station's team of legal experts. How has the prosecution been doing in proving Tex MacGyver intentionally shot and killed his wife, Diane? Did they prove motive? Without a doubt, they showed motive because they showed there was no love, that he didn't care about Diane, he didn't love her, but he loved her money. And the only way that he could get it was that he had to have her gone. Yes, they proved motive. They proved it by showing a story of greed and he's callous disregard for his, for his wife and he shot her dead. The Tex McIver trial resumes after that one week break on April 9th, 2018, the 15th day of testimony. Among those taking the stand on the first day back, Dr. Marty Sellers, one of the surgeons who fought to save Diane McIver the night she arrived at Emory University Hospital. 
The jury hears details about Diane's fatal injury and that surgeons tried for more than two hours to keep her alive. But it's what happened after she died, when Dr. Sellers went to find Tex McIver and tell him the news, that the prosecution is eager to highlight. Well, Dr. Syed and I were already in the room, um, and I was standing immediately next to the, to the door, which would be right here. Dr. Syed was standing uh, over here by this chair, um, and uh, Mr. McIver and um, his companion came into the room with the security agent, or with, I'm sorry, the security guard, and um, the chaplain, I think, was uh, with them, or they, she was already in the room. I don't recall that specifically. But uh, Dr. Syed um, took the lead and said, you know, please, Mr. MacGyver, uh, have a seat. And he was pointing to this chair here. And Mr. MacGyver, uh, basically before the sentence was able to fin uh, be finished, he said, don't tell me what to do, boy. Which was um, not, not in a, a threatening way, but in an aggressive way, I would say. Dr. Sellers goes on, testifying about what happened next. It caught us, I guess, off guard a little bit. Um, but, you know, the, I, I guess at that time, and someone's, um, you know, delivering this news, you, and not knowing what they already know, uh, there's a maybe a little bit of latitude you give someone in terms of how they act. Uh, so we uh, convinced him to sit down um, and started delivering the news and basically, uh, without recalling the exact words that we would have used, said that despite all of our efforts, um, the injuries that she sustained were just impossible to, uh, to recover from. He does, um, and um, the, there were a couple of notable things that, uh, that sort of stuck out, one of which was um, he was sitting with his you know, knees on his elbows and looked up and said, I'm really trying hard not to lose it, or I'm really trying hard not to cry. I don't remember specifically. I think... Uh, um, uh, I don't, but one of, uh, maybe a distinction without a difference, but he uh, looked up and he said that. Dr. Sellers then recalls another comment Tex made. We had delivered sort of the news thinking, uh, you know, now we've said everything we need to say and uh, give him a chance uh, to respond or ask any questions. And I'm sure we even said, you know, do you, ha do you have any questions? Um, and then some more conversation ensued and interrupted this time, he looked up and said, this is the hardest thing you do, isn't it? And I would have said something to the effect, you know, right now I'm more concerned about you than what, how difficult our job is. Um, and then he went into a description of, uh, because I used to do this in the Army or the military, I forget which service he said, but um, I used to have to call and tell little Johnny's parents, that little Johnny didn't survive. And I remember how hard that was. Tex MacGyver, very aggressive with Diane's surgeon. Is this evidence of Tex's bad temper? It absolutely is evidence of Tex's bad behavior. It's one more clink in the coffin for him. Guilty of having a bad temper. Guilty of having a bad reaction. Guilty of not reacting the way we wish he had reacted. Does not make him guilty of murder. 
On April 15th, after 16 days and testimony from dozens of witnesses, the prosecution rests its case. State rested. Who's winning right now, prosecution or defense? Clearly the defense. The state has just not proven this case beyond a reasonable doubt. Prosecution, without a doubt, because they've proven that Tex is a liar, they've proven there's financial motive, and that there are other reasons out there that Tex might have wanted Diane gone. The defense is poised to begin calling witnesses to the stand. But first, Judge Robert McBurney makes a ruling on two of the seven charges against Tex McIver. Two witness tampering charges in the Tex MacGyver trial dismissed by the judge today because he said prosecutors did not present enough evidence. Judge Robert McBurney says the state didn't prove MacGyver tampered with witnesses when he contacted Bill Crane about his Black Lives Matter statement or when he called and left a voicemail for Danny Joe Carter's husband about the Carter's hiring lawyers and how that might look bad for Tex. It's a small victory for the defense, but Tex McIver is still left facing five other charges, including one remaining count of witness tampering and, of course, malice murder. On the first day of testimony from defense witnesses, Dr. David Rye, a professor of neurology at Emory University, is called to the stand to explain how Tex could have fired the gun unknowingly. They brought up a sleep expert who studied Tex almost 15 years ago to talk about his specific sleep disorder. Okay, what was your diagnosis? Uh, REM sleep behavior disorder. Being awakened when the gun went off, is that consistent or inconsistent with the confusional arousal? I think it's one explanation. It's consistent. REM sleep behavior disorder, or RBD, has already been brought up by a prosecution expert who discounted the theory that it could have played into the events that night. The defense expert believes otherwise, saying that RBD can cause someone to flail their arms and legs while sleeping, movements that can be jerky and sporadic. The expert says that someone with RBD, like Tex, can suffer from confusional arousals And when they wake up, they can be disoriented and unaware of what they've done. Being confused, not oriented fully, maybe not remembering, and maybe performing partial behaviors that are not purposeful. As the defense continues calling witnesses, those of us in the courtroom are still wondering if Tex masseuse, Annie Anderson, will be called to the stand. The woman who was allegedly seen wearing a pair of Diane's boots not long after her death. What if Texas masseuse comes into that courtroom and takes the stand? What sort of impact is that going to have on this case? One of the characters that everyone was talking about during the trial and was anticipating her testimony was Annie Anderson. Annie Anderson was a massage therapist, a masseuse. And Diane MacGyver would get massages uh, from Annie Anderson, and then Tex would also get massages. But the re- the relationship went beyond that. It, it seems like they really became very close with Annie Anderson, the masseuse. Diane and Tex did, so much so that there were stories that they would travel together. Like They're going on a trip, and they would bring the masseuse with them. On day 18, the defense does call Annie Anderson to the stand, and all eyes in the courtroom are on her. For yes. Annie Anderson, A N N I E A N D E R 
S-O-N. Texas attorney Don Samuel begins the questioning. And um, what is your profession? I am a massage therapist and wellness coach, which involves a list of other things. Posture, orthopedic massage. Anderson testifies she first got to know the McIvers 13 years ago. And so over the next 13 years, did you maintain a business relationship with them? I did. Um, did you provide massages to both Tex and Diane McIver? Yes. yes. Do you do other therapies? therapies yes. and things like that? Yes. Over the years, um, Diane had a wealth that she probably treasured more than anything on earth other than the beautiful family that she loved, um, and that was her, her health and wellness. She was articulate about it, and she wanted everyone around her to be the healthiest, most agile people. So she was um, one of the greatest people to ever work with because she had no limit on what she would try or what she would try to rebalance or strengthen or empower her body or anyone else's body to do. And so we went through a million modalities over the years, and we had been working a lot on Pilates. Samuel then shifts and asks specifically about her relationship with Tex McIver. Do you ever have a romantic relationship with Tex McIver? Never. Uh, did you ever perform a, a massage on him any time in the months following the death of his life, Diane, which he was naked? 1,000% never. Did you ever touch him sexually? Never. Did you ever touch you sexually? Never. Are you aware that the prosecution in this case has objection, After a series of objections from the prosecution, Samuel picks back up. I don't want you to miss words. I don't want this to be like a Bill Clinton type of question and answer. Did you ever at any time, I'm talking about any time before Diane Charm's death or after her death, either before September 2016 or after September 2016, engage in any sexual conduct, however you want to define it, with Tex McGuire. Never. When Mr. McGuire received the massage, is that the right verb, received, had a massage, received a massage, did he ever fall asleep on the massage table? Almost every time. When he was asleep, did you notice anything about any unusual behavior? Yes. How would you that? He would have conversations in his sleep, and then depending on what he was saying, he would act things out, or he might just be quiet and all of a sudden flare an arm or kind of a punch or something like that, and I would have to get out of the way if I was close to his body in any way. She testifies that after Diane's death, she kept a close eye on Tex, knowing he was in a fragile state. Did you let him drive anywhere by himself? No. Did you let him go anywhere by himself? No. Did you let him even go into a room by himself? Only the bathroom. Were you and the style or just concerned about Tex and well-being? In many ways. Yes. And then there was testimony when 
Tex MacGyver shot and killed Diane, and 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 afterwards they're all back at the the uh, apartment in Buckhead, and there's a group of people there, all there, you know, condolences, trying to support Tex, who who seemed to be impacted by all of it, and Annie Anderson, the masseuse, testifies that that night she she spent in Tex's bedroom, sleeping on the floor. Just keeping an eye on Tex, making sure he was okay. A lot of people are like, what? That's that's kind of strange. That's kind of strange. But there was no indication that there was any sort of relationship between Tex MacGyver and Annie Anderson. She was happily married, so it, it didn't seem, but it was just strange to hear. I was going to take care of him overnight. Um, just monitor him and make sure that if he got up to go to the bathroom that he did not fall or that he in no way was harmful to himself just because we honestly weren't sure what state of mind he had. Sat on the floor on pillows? Yes, with my back up against a mirrored wall. Occasionally, I'd try to lay down for a second on the pillows, but it was a small pallet. And where was that car? On his side of the bed, which was obviously the opposite side of the bed. Did you get him? Did you get into the bed? Never. Did you... Did you... I'm giving you a Huh? I'm giving you a Did you have sexual relations with Tex Magaver that night in the bed? One thousand percent never. Did you touch him that night? No. <laughs> can I clarify something? I hope that you can just answer the questions. No, the last question that you asked, that if I ever touched him when he was sleeping, like, yes. So I'm just trying to clarify. Can I say? So I created on his side of the bed when he went to sleep, kind of a zero gravity portion of him laying. He was very swollen in his sinuses. His eyes were puffy. They were very red and obviously from crying. And so I had a cold, um, it's made of flaxseed. It's like a little pillow that goes over your eyes. It has a heavy weight to it for the compression. And then he had a hot, um, that you warm up in the night, mi- microwave, kind of like a neck pillow that weighs about eight pounds on his chest because with the anxiety, he was having some trouble catching his breath sometimes, and it was just helping to keep his chest relaxed. And his feet and his legs had pillows underneath them to create like a zero gravity for his lymphatic drainage. It allowed the blood to be kind of circulating more naturally in his body in that zero gravity. Um, And so, you know, and he had a lot of nightmares. And so if he had a nightmare, I would do the polarity rocking that I talked about for a second or two and just kind of jostle him to try to keep him asleep. Did you ever take his clothes off? No. Did you ever take your clothes No. In his cross-examination, Clint Rooker with the prosecution asks Anderson about going with Tex to the ranch that week after Diane's death. And when you got down to the ranch on Friday, um, did you stay down there Friday night? Yes. Okay. And can you tell the jurors... Um, did you stay in the guest house in the saloon that night? No. And so what part of the of the ranch did you were you occupied in? 
I was sitting on the couch that is in the master bedroom, watching over him. Rucker also asks about the rubber boots that a prosecution witness testified he'd seen Anderson wearing at one point. Anderson says she never wore the boots, testifying that Diane's foot size was seven and a half and hers is much larger. Are you 1,000% sure that she wears a seven and a half? Well, a shoe size can vary by a half to a full size depending on the narrowness of it. And Diane had very narrow feet, and I do not, so I don't know how her shoe size varied, but I would imagine it's anywhere from a seven and a half to a half a size up or down, depending on the size of the shoe. Are you just guessing about that? Because my question to you was, are you 1,000% sure that she wears a seven and a half? No. Okay. Rucker then asks Anderson if she talked to Tex about leaving the ranch at some point and returning to Atlanta. While you were there that Sunday or even Monday, did you have a conversation with the defendant about the fact that you needed to go back to Atlanta because it didn't look good for you to be there with him? No. He never had that conversation with you? You asked me if I had that conversation with him. I did not, and he did not have it with me. To answer both ways. Okay. Let me ask you this. Did you go back to Atlanta? Yes. When? I believe it was at some point on Sunday. Did you go back with the defendant or did you go alone? With the defendant. On day 19 of testimony, tension once again builds in the courtroom as the prosecution cross-examines the final defense witness, a crime scene expert. Can you offer the jury any information about where this gun was in relationship to Mr. MacGyver at the time of the discharge? If he is seated, Mm -hmm. as everyone has demonstrated, Mr. Knox, Mr. Dustin, and so forth, and myself. He's got a right to answer the question as he seems appropriate. You can't cut him off if you don't like the answer. Okay, no need to get vulgar with Mr. Hart. Take a seat. Yeah, the place where you say the gun could be, where you showed us the demonstrative, where the gun could be along your thigh. How about your thigh? I haven't measured my thigh recently. Haven't measured your thigh. Prosecutor Clint Rucker was animated, yelling, arguing with the defense expert. You said it's the reason why you can come in here and tell this jury that he couldn't have done exactly what Mr. Knox said he did. It's more than just a little factor, isn't it? Who wins that battle? By doing that, it shows that the defense is getting to him, which means he's losing the case. Clint Rucker fell into the category of, if you're not going to convince me, maybe if I just talk a little louder and louder and louder. That argument never wins. So he can't really, he's really going to force the issue. The defense crime scene experts said the prosecution theory is impossible. Trying to put that gun down here and keep that orientation, once again, you're gonna have to, you would be in a very convoluted position. Will the jury buy it? He hedged on a whole other issues. So that made it so the prosecution wins, not the defense. Then, after less than a week, the defense rests. And for the first time in the trial, we hear Tex McIver speak aloud in the courtroom. You also have an absolute right not to testify. Do you understand that? Do you choose to testify in your trial? No. 
following a weekend break, the trial resumes. The prosecution brings forward a rebuttal witness to address the defense claim that Tex has a sleep disorder and its argument as to how that might have played into Tex firing the gun that night of Diane's death. Dr. Mark Pressman is a trained sleep researcher with 40 years of experience in the field of sleep disorders. There are two major categories of parasomnias. Those that occur during uh, rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And those that occur uh, in sleep that is not REM sleep. It's usually just called non-REM sleep. Although usually in the deeper stages of non-REM sleep. There are actually three stages of REM sleep, very light, sort of intermediate, and deep. Dr. Pressman testifies that he's reviewed years of tests and test results indicating that Tex McIver might have a sleep disorder. But then he's asked if anything in particular struck him about Tex's interview with police following Diane's death. The first one was a description uh, he gave to the police as to his, how he was feeling uh, as they kept on driving, uh, you can give me the exact words, that he was driving, that he was seeing more and more, you know, people on the streets. And at the, I believe at the end, he said it made the hair on the back of his neck stand up. And would you consider that to be a type of stress or um, anxiety? Well, I'd go even further than that. I think hair on, standing up on the back of your neck is is something that is typically associated with fear, fearfulness. And our stress, anxiety, or as you classify it as fear, are they compatible with sleep or sleeping? No. uh, People who are very fearful uh, will have a very hard time falling asleep. It's absolutely incompatible. Uh, When we treat patients with uh, insomnia, uh, it's one of the things we make great efforts is to you know, keep that hour or so before bedtime, you know, free, completely free of stress and anxiety. Pressman is essentially saying if Tex felt fear as they drove through the streets of Atlanta, then it wouldn't make sense for him to be able to fall into any kind of sleep state such a short time later, only to be jarred awake. Well, I, I believe we only have a few minutes. Uh, uh, I think we said seven to ten minutes, maybe, or probably less. Uh, for it to occur. So if he had uh, dozed off uh, almost uh, uh, almost immediately, then uh, three or four minutes is not, you know, even 10 minutes is not sufficient time to get to REM, uh, much less to deep sleep. He then testifies that the timing meant it would have been unlikely that a sleep disorder or something like confusional arousal could have played into what happened that night. What you reviewed self-described consistent with somebody who's experiencing a confusional arousal? Uh, no. Okay. And why not? Well, again, the timing is off. Uh, confusional arousals uh, occur during uh, deep sleep uh, or on the transition to deep sleep at the, the least. They certainly don't occur in light sleep. Uh, You cannot have a disorder of arousal. You can't have a partial arousal if you're only uh, just a little bit past being awake. You need to be substantially asleep uh, to have a partial arousal. 
And now, can someone wake up or wake quickly from usual arousal and be immediately aware of their surroundings? No, it, right. It's it's a standard uh, for all disorders of arousal: sleepwalking, confusional arousal. And people do not wake up suddenly. Remember, they're stuck in this never-never land between sleep and wake. Typically, uh, when they come out of the state, they are confused, uh, and they slowly regain uh, their orientation and their alertness, uh, usually over several minutes. So is it inconsistent with having a confusion arousal to be uh, immediately aware that you're handling a gun, that the gun discharged, and, uh, again, that you're able to give directions to um, a hospital? No, that, that should not be able to occur for... Uh, several minutes after a confusional arousal. He goes on answering the prosecution's questions, clearly stating he believes Tex McIver was awake when the gun went off. In your uh, report, Dr. Sessions, did you come to uh, conclusions for what you believe, based on all your training and experience, as to um, the defendant's behavior on September 25th, 2016? Uh, yes. Okay. And based on everything that you reviewed, um, was the defendant's behavior consistent with somebody suffering from a uh, REM behavior disorder episode or in that state? No. And was it consistent with somebody who was experiencing uh, a confusional arousal? No. Okay. Now, based on everything that you reviewed, based on your four years of experience, um, your research, your publications, is the defendant's behavior consistent with somebody who was awake when the gun was fired on September 25th of 2016? Yes. Before Pressman leaves the stand, Judge McBurney asks one final question as clarification for the jury. Why Pressman believes Tex wasn't asleep or startled awake? Explain to the jurors, please, why you concluded, based on what you know, that it was impossible for Mr. MacGyver to have fallen back asleep after he asked for the firearm. Okay, well, we're talking while, about... While still in the car. While still in the car. Right, well, it's just uh, uh, what we know about the relationship of uh, stress, anxiety, and fear. I mean, he asked for the gun... Uh, because uh, he felt danger, okay? I assume that, uh, you know, a gun is a defensive weapon against attack. We thought all these people, I guess, on the street might, you know, uh, attack the car or whatever. And he became so fearful that he actually had, had uh, biological signs of it, as he describes it, that the hairs on the back of his neck, that's very fearful. <laughs> And uh, in that kind of condition, uh, people don't sleep. You can't, you can't be extremely fearful and be relaxed enough to fall asleep uh, within moments. Following that testimony, jurors take a field trip after asking for a close-up look at the McIver's SUV. One at a time, and we're just gonna go numerically, um, you will be permitted to approach the vehicle. If you wanna get in it, you can get in it. Cameras aren't allowed, but I was able to join the tour with 11 Alive photographer Jefferson Cochran. 
The jurors went up one at a time. Each juror took about a minute and a half. Some jurors took as long as two minutes. Some got in all four doors. Some only got in two doors. They were allowed to sit in each of the four seats. Yes. Any notable reaction from any of the jurors? No, it just seemed like they were just looking at another car. The final day of testimony comes to a close, with closing arguments scheduled to begin in the morning. Some of the themes that we can expect to hear tomorrow morning, you know, first, guns don't just go off. Sleep disorders don't make guns fire. Bumps in the road don't do it. Someone has to pull that trigger. Another big theme for prosecutors will be motive. Why did he do it? Money. After Diane was dead, Tex MacGyver was $4 million richer. Now, for the defense, expect to hear that Tex MacGyver loved his wife, Diane, and had no reason to kill her. He had money, she had money, and together they were living a very luxurious life. Next time on Intent. Who will stand for Diane MacGyver? She knew betrayal, hurt, and pain. The Tex McIver case is a co-production of Vault Studios and 11 Alive WXIA News in Atlanta. Will Johnson and Brian Weiss are executive producers with Vault Studios. Reed Redman produces, researches, and edits the podcast. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. You can find me on Facebook at Caitlin Ross 11 Alive or on Twitter at Caitlin Ross 1.